everyone. Welcome to Brainsplain. I'm your host, Caitlin Merrick, and joining me today is the founder and CEO of Emotive Analytics, Paul Connor. Super excited to have you here today, Paul, so welcome. Oh, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so let's just kind of jump into it. First, I just want to hear a little bit about you. If you just want to share some of your work background and what you do at Emotive Analytics, that'd be great. Okay, well, uh, I'm gonna date myself here. I started as a consumer researcher in 1982. So I've been doing this for a long time. I will fast forward to more to emotive analytics uh, work. Uh, around the turn of the century, around 2002, 2003, um, I went out on my own and I started seeing from psychology and neuroscience that emotions and feelings are what drive human behavior. Um, and so I thought that was quite interesting. I thought I had always thought, even I, with my psychology background, I thought that emotions were kind of a nice thing to know about or a nice thing to, to have about behavior. But the neuroscientists and the psychologists were showing us that uh, emotions are necessary and they're required necessarily for uh, someone to make decisions and behave in whatever they're doing. So I thought this was, would be an interesting niche to uh, specialize in. And I also learned, which was also very important to the work we do, that a lot of this happens non-consciously. That is, people aren't even aware of how they might be feeling about something or how their feelings might be impacting their behavior. So um, along with studying emotions, what they are and how they impact behavior, uh, I really looked into measuring emotions non-consciously. These days, there are other words for that. It's called implicit or system one is another word that you hear a lot in the field today. So that's what started me down this road. And again, about 2003, 2004, I started Emotive Analytics. Um, and since then, continue to learn about what emotions are, how they impact behavior. And we're a research company, so uh, we develop techniques to effectively measure emotions that influence behavior. Gotcha, that's really cool. So I'm curious to kind of talk about just emotional dynamics in general. I read a little bit about that on your website. So could you just explain a little bit how that can help explain why people do what they do? Okay, uh, I am going to share my screen. Are you in front of a computer? I am. I don't know how this will translate with the recording, but let me do a couple things <laughs> here and make it smaller. So this is from our capabilities presentation. Um, I won't make it larger, uh, hopefully you can see it. But we operate from what I call an emotional dynamics framework, which as you'll see there, explains why people do what they do. And again, all of this comes from psychologists and neuroscientists uh, and the work they've done in the last 20 plus years or so. So there are three elements to emotional dynamics. There are, and, and they all operate within a particular situation or context. Um, so that's very important to know because if the context, if the context changes, then some of how these elements work together will change too. But the first thing is we have experiences, things happen to us. We see television, we hear people talk, we hear speeches, we hear our teachers uh, give lectures, whatever it is, whatever happens to us, I'm calling experiences. And we have those experiences, we react to them in a couple of different ways. We have cognitions about them, that those are thoughts or mental phenomena, if you will. And we have what's called affect, which is a more global term for emotions and feelings. Affect can be sensations, physical sensations, emotions, feelings, etc. So th these three elements really uh, in our brain operate and the goal is to make a decision or do something about what's happening to us. 
But what neuroscientists and psychologists are telling us is that affect, that is emotions and feelings, really provide the value that we need to decide what's going to be good for us and what's not going to be good for us in a certain situation. So affect really is the phenomena in this mix that drives our behavior. Uh, this is all explained up here, and I can send this to uh, Caitlin if, if you need it. But another thing that's very important to the framework is that all of this happens both consciously, that is, we're aware of it happening and we're thinking about it, if you will, but a lot of it happens non-consciously too, implicitly. Uh, and that is sometimes we're on automatic, we're not even thinking about things, and we don't even know how our behavior is being impacted. So that's, but again, the, the key thing for emotions is that affect, something emotional, is really providing the value to us to tell us whether a certain thought we have about something that's happening to us is going to be good for us or not. And it really gets back into evolution. That is, are we going to survive or not? You know, we, we, uh, these dynamics have evolved from animals whose really goal was to stay alive. Now we can, um, you know, expand that to uh, feeling good or having our well-being enhanced. Uh, but that's the emotional dynamics framework that we operate from. Very long-winded, but hopefully that helps you understand. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. And, you know, as I'm kind of looking at this and you're talking about the subconscious and the conscious, the two different aspects, you know, one of your main circles there is cognitions. And we talk about that all the time, like hot versus cold cognition, you know, those thought out responses compared to just the subconscious instantaneous reactions. Right. Right. And I would think, and again, we could play semantics here, but when you say hot and cold, in my terminology, hot means that there's a very strong emotional reaction that is associated with a certain thought, uh, cognition, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk a lot about, you know, different implicit aspects and systems. Um, could you kind of define maybe what implicit association is for somebody who might not really be familiar? with this field. Sure. So I'm going to go to another slide in this presentation. Let me go right here. So when I'm talking about implicit system one thoughts and feelings, and they can be cognitions as well as feelings, these are our automatic first reactions to stimuli in our environment. They're very fast. They're involuntary. That is unintentional and uncontrolled. We can't, we don't control them. They just happen to us. Um, they're non-deliberated, which means that we're not thinking about this, right? Uh, we have no control of it, and we don't think about it. Now, I'd say sometimes they're subconscious. I'd say sometimes because sometimes we are aware of a stimulus. We're, we're conscious of the stimulus, but we're not aware of how it's impacting our behavior. There, so there is some aspect of the non-conscious operating in an implicit reaction to something. This is very important. Implicit system one thoughts and feelings are what's called associative in nature. That's what we call them associations. Um, this means that they're just pairings of a stimulus with a thought or a feelings, and there's no truth uh, uh, applied to this. So that if, if let's say that I have an implicit association with uh, something good about a candy bar, I'm not thinking whether the candy bar is going to be good for me or not and evaluating it at that level. It just happens because in my experience, these two have been paired together. And when I see a candy bar, I feel good for some reason. Um, so anyway, that's what associative means. Implicit thoughts and feelings are always on. Like I said, we can't control them. And they're sometimes different than what 
explicit thoughts and feelings are. Now, explicit thoughts and feelings are when we uh, when we think about what the stimulus is and deliberate on it. Uh, these thing, these uh, reactions of thoughts and feelings come slower. They are intentional. They are controlled, uh, and they're always conscious. We're thinking about things consciously, and they're what's called propositional in nature. This means that we do apply truth value to whatever the um, proposition is we're thinking about or whatever the stimulus is we're thinking about. That is, I go back to the candy bar example. I may deliberate on the candy bar before I actually buy it or eat it because I may have other thoughts and feelings about it that make it unhealthful or not good for me in some way. So when I deliberate about it, uh, my feelings can change about it and therefore my behavior can change as well. But one thing that's very important about explicit is it's not always on. We don't always deliberate on the stimuli that we're faced with in our environment. So sometimes our behavior is very impulsive and non-conscious. We'll get back to that word as well. And again, sometimes um, explicit thoughts and feelings are different than implicit. Most of the time they're the same, but sometimes they're different. So I'll stop there. Hopefully that explains the difference. Yeah, it definitely does. And it's very interesting because it's very applicable to so many decisions, like you said, just simply coming down to, do I want to eat this candy bar or not? You know, you can see the two different things. So I'm curious, taking that a little bit back to what you do, how does understanding these two systems and having the knowledge on each of them, how do you use that expertise at Emotive Analytics? Well, uh, in a number of different ways, you know, our clients have to know what people are thinking and feeling. Um, and often, if they do traditional surveys in our work, they're only getting the explicit thoughts and feelings that people have. That is, and it only relates to behavior that people engage in when they're deliberating on their behavior, right? Uh, but it doesn't really relate to perhaps uh, behavior that are, is impulsive, when I don't even think about buying something like the candy bar example. So very often, um, well, I, I don't know about very often, but sometimes, I'll say sometimes at least, uh, what we see from traditional surveys and people's implicit thoughts and feelings are not the same. And I'm looking for another chart here. Here, this is what I'm looking for. Let me do this so you can see it. I don't know. There we go. Oh, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Hold on. Sorry, Caitlin. Let me go back to a case study I have in my deck. Here we go. So these, and I'm going to enlarge this a little bit. Okay. So if you can see this, Caitlin, we have a study where we collected implicit associations and their feeling attributes, as you see there, and explicit associations with wireless providers. They're anonymized there, WP9, WP, whatever number. Uh, those are the wireless provider companies that we were studying. And as you can see, the implicit associations are close or far away from various emotional attributes. Now, it's important to measure both because sometimes they don't match up. If you notice here, WP9, wireless provider number nine, implicitly come, uh, elicits a feeling of boredom for the targeted consumers. But when we ask them to explicitly think about WP9, it turns into feeling relaxed. Now, one's negative, obviously, and another is positive. And we think what's happening here is that consumers, when they take surveys, want to be very positive. They don't want to be negative. 
So when they think about what their answers are going to be, they turn what might be boredom euphemistically into something like relaxation, which is kind of a low energy feeling as well. But they're not either feeling or they're not admitting that they feel bored. So imagine that you're um, the head of the marketing for w, WP9. If you only had this explicit, oops, if you only had this explicit information, you might um, design your campaigns around the feeling of relaxation, which really doesn't reflect a very strong negative feeling people are having about um, my product or my brand as boredom. So it's good to know this and try in your marketing to mitigate or eliminate a feeling of boredom that people automatically have when they um, uh, come up against your brand. I'll stop there again. That's just an example of how it's used, how we can use it. When we know what thoughts and feelings are associated with brands or products or services or ads, we can inform our clients that these are either positive or negative and what they are specifically, and then have them um, develop their strategies and executions to either enhance or mitigate whatever feelings are in their uh, strategic objectives. Yeah, that that is so interesting because like you said, if you're only looking at the explicit associations, you are really missing the true data, like the honest data. Right. And I don't know, that's so interesting to think about, you know, because that was going to be one of my questions. What are some of the key advantages of using these psych or these neuro-related insights? And it's like, that's such a main one. Without them, you really might not be getting honest data. Yeah. I want to comment on what you say. You're calling implicit true and explicit maybe not true. That's not exactly it. They're both true, but they're but they represent different situations that someone might be experiencing uh, in a given buying situation. It may be true that once people think about WP9 and contemplate on it, relaxation is a true feeling that I have. But if I'm in a situation where I don't have time to think, it's an impulsive buying situation, then boredom might better rule the war, might better rule my behavior or guide my behavior. So they're both true, uh, unless this, unless the people over here are lying to us, right? We'll assume they're telling us the truth. They're doing the best they can. They're both true. They just um, elicit, they're elicited in different situations. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I'm kind of curious, building off of that, like I just said, you know, this is one of those key advantages of using these insights. Do you think that there are any others that are super important and can kind of set companies like yours above others who may not be using these kind of insights? But when you say insight, any other insights, can you elaborate what you mean by that? Um, any other, you know, uh, I guess like those psych neuro related insights where you are looking at those implicit associations where somebody else may only be looking at the explicit ones? Yeah, so I mean, we could come up with a, a lot of different examples, uh, like in package designs or advertisements or uh, a lot of different applications, marketing applications, pricing, etc., where we're not aware of how our non-conscious is impacting us. So there are some classic studies out there. I'll, for instance, um, let's go to a classic study about wine, buying wine in a wine shop. Um, there was a study done probably in the 80s, maybe even the 90s, I'm not sure. But uh, when um, French music was playing in the background in a wine shop, people bought a lot more French wine than they bought German wine. 
But when German music was playing in the background, people bought a lot more German wine than they did French wine. Um, and so in applications like this for retailers, they can use this environmental information. They can manipulate or architect the environment to try to increase their sales. Now, some people might say it's manipulating people, and we won't get into that conversation now, but it can work to their advantage because people, and, and in that study, when people were asked, you know, why did you buy this wine versus a German wine or whatever, they never said that because I heard the music playing and it, and it impacted my decision because they didn't know. It doesn't, they don't know that it's impacting their decision. So there are many instances like that where um, certain environmental factors can activate implicit thoughts and feelings to influence the behavior um, unbeknownst to uh, the consumers. That's really cool. I've never heard of that study. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> I know you said, you know, that's a whole conversation for later about the manipulation, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that because I feel like you know, at least for me, a lot of my friends who don't really understand the whole concept of like consumer neuroscience or neuromarketing or, you know, research based around this, when I explain it, they're like, so you're trying to use mind control or like, or, you know, you're manipulating the way people think. And it's like, like, no, not necessarily, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, again, we could debate that all day long and there's a lot of um, academic thought on this, but one one thing that you can think about is is a is a marketer doing something that's kind of um, unnatural for a consumer? So playing a certain type of music in a store is not necessarily unnatural. Um, and that's one argument that people say why it's not unethical, right? It's just, you know, it's out there, it's common. We're not doing anything that's, you know, that's unnatural to people that they're not used to, et cetera. Um, other people will argue that if you're using it for a purpose that hurts the consumer in some way, then that's unethical. So um, someone, for the example I just gave you, might argue that, you know, is French wine hurting someone worse than German wine, et cetera? Uh, it might be hurting them because it's going against their, you know, their choice, if you will, but it's not hurting them. Uh, in their health or in some extreme sense of well-being. So in that way, we're not really hurting anybody. But in instances where you're really doing something that's um, either people are really unaware of, they don't know what's happening to them, or it's hurting them in some way, then it can be thought of to be unethical. Um, you know, think about it. Marketers just advertising anything that people say says to try to get you to buy their product or service is a type of manipulation at some level, right? Um, so um, you can argue that it's happening to us all the time, and it's just kind of natural in our behavior, in our in the way we do things. So again, that's some those are some of the arguments that you hear back and forth with this ethical dilemma. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this is also making me think, you know, I feel like there are still a lot of companies, a lot of um, people doing market research that aren't using uh, psychology or neuro aspect. They're, they're not like they're kind of just more based on the explicit data. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I, I feel like it's a growing field, but it is still very small compared to like what I feel it should be, honestly, with the insights that it can bring. And I'm curious 
you know, this is just making me think like, do you think people are shying away from it because of that kind of stigma? Or do you think it's just more of like a, you know, being resistant to change type thing? I think it's more the latter. I don't think, you know, the marketers are resisting us because they think it's unethical. They might be when you start talking about the neurophysiological brain scanning or biometrics or something like that. But the types of things I'm talking about here, the implicit association, no. I think they're not getting into it for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're not aware of it. I mean, this is this is still, I'm still amazed. I've, I've been studying this stuff for 10, 15 years now. So I think everybody's aware of it, but they're not. A lot of people have never even heard of the word implicit or they don't even, they're not even aware that emotions are really what drive our behavior. So there is a lack of awareness, and that's one reason why they're not doing this type of work. Another thing is that it is still somewhat experimental, although not as much as it was 15 years ago. Um, and companies don't want to take the risk necessarily to spend their money on something that they don't know if it works or not. So it's, it's you know, the, the stuff they know about the explicit traditional surveying, they know or they think it works all the time and they're used to it. So if you do something, something that's different or that even the upper management doesn't know about, there you have to ask them to take a risk. And as I'm sure you're aware of, companies and executives are very risk avoidant, it, especially if they're asked to spend a lot of money. So those are some, some of the more real um, reasons why this isn't used as much as it is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because, yeah, similar to you, I feel like, you know, I've, I've been researching it and looking into this kind of stuff just for a couple of years. And to me, it's like, how does everyone not know about this? But, you know, that makes sense. It's, it is not that well known. And maybe it will just grow as people become more familiar with it. I also wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, is it the AIM process or AIM process? It's AIM. Um, okay. Yeah. So the AIM process, AIM stands for Applications, Information, and Methods, and it really doesn't have to do necessarily with uh, implicit or emotions. It's just a way to design research studies. Um, I started working on this actually in the 80s. I started thinking about it, and it was born because as a researcher, I found very often that my clients would come to me and they would ask for research uh, a technique, right? The focus groups were back in the day and they're still being conducted today, but hey, Paul, I need some focus groups. Can you do some focus groups for me? Or they would come to me with a request just to collect some information. Tell me what people are thinking about my product or service. But as, as you know, market research, consumer research is an applied discipline. And so what people should be bringing to us is the decisions that they're going to make at the end of us, at the end of whatever the research project is, because we have to tailor our research methods to make sure that the research helps support the decisions that they're going to make. So very often we would get done with a research study and we present a lot of good information, but somebody higher up in the hierarchy would say, well, it doesn't answer the question I really have because they have a different question or it doesn't help me make the decision that I really need to make. So the AIM process is a way, a stepwise approach to design research that starts with our client's decisions. So I will always say to people, what are you going to do with this when you're finished with it? What decisions do you want to make? And then once we know that, we design the information so that it makes sense that it supports the decisions 
And then we go with the methods that will collect the information we need. So it's a stepwise process. So in the very end, if you follow the AIM process, um, it will improve the actionability of the research at the back end and, and avoid clients coming to us at the end and saying, hey, I don't know what to do with this, or it doesn't answer my questions, or it doesn't help me make the decisions I need to make. Gotcha. That's really cool. Very interesting and definitely effective. You know, I feel like that that is the case. Like you said, very often people are kind of like, okay, they have this data and now it's like, well, what do we do with it? Or yeah. it didn't answer the question. <laughs> yeah, they should they should know what they're going to do with the data before it's even collected. Uh, right. They should just follow the logic of the decision uh, to be made. Right. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to be conscious of your time. And for those who are listening who might want to connect with you further or maybe learn more about your work or this AIM process, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me, Paul, P-A-U-L, at emotiveanalytics.com. If they go to emotiveanalytics.com, you know, you can search for contact information and, and contact me that way. That's probably the best way. Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, Caitlin.